my husband and son are putting pizza in. I think they set the smoke detector <laughs> off. Oh my goodness. I'm, I'm so glad that you can edit these. <laughs> Hey, 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 what is up, everyone? You are listening to the Professor Fi podcast. You are listening to my voice, KN, and, and I'm with Evie. My voice. <laughs> Again, with the initials. I can't, like, oh, my I'm Kyle. God. I'm Ethan. And you're listening to the Professor Fi podcast, episode two. We made it to episode two. two we didn't whole know episodes. if we were going to make it past episode one, but we finally did. <laughs> and we're at episode two. We are so excited to have our next guest on today. She is a professor of marketing at Stonehill College. She is also the director of planning and administration at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth. And she has 20 plus years of marketing experience in retail, pitching to major retailers such as Amazon, Walmart, and Target. And without further ado, here is Professor Kristen McGillicuddy. Kristen, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you for having me, Kyle and Ethan. It's nice to be here. We're so excited to have you and talk about this, everything under the sun that we can today in an hour's time. So uh, without further ado, let's just get into it. Uh, so we've all experienced COVID over the past few months in quarantine. And that's forced a lot of us to adapt to new technology, um, both as in our individual lives and in our careers and professions. So in your day-to-day -day life over quarantine and throughout COVID, what changes in technology really did you have to adapt to? That's a great question. You know, and in a way, I think it was somewhat of a, a blessing as opposed to a curse because it did force me and many people to use technology and learn to use new things in new ways. And I think we'll use that on an ongoing basis. Um, I think the obvious use of technology was meetings. Meetings for both you know, my day job um, as well as teaching, which I do both. And um, I think that those meetings used to be perhaps the, uh, the exception rather than the norm. And um, I think we all learn to use the tools we learned to understand Zoom. Obviously, that was the go-to tool. How to use a webcam, how to use audio. Um, I think, though, probably what was most important to me and, and one of the positives that I really like is that we became more casual with it and more accepting. Maybe it was just me, but in the past, when you were holding a meeting or even a class as a teacher using a virtual tool, it seemed more like a formal presentation you really worried far more, at least I did, about my background or about noises or, oh, I hope everyone's quiet around me and my dog doesn't bark and no one knocks on the door. But since we have all been coming into each other's homes with these tools, we've become a lot more casual. And in a strange way, we might feel far apart. I think it's been actually quite personal. We are in each other's homes. We are very accepting of my cat walking across the street <laughs> or someone's child crying or saying, I'm hungry, mom. So um, I think that acceptance of our use of technology, in addition to just learning to use it, has been a real positive. Definitely. Yeah. So one thing I kind of wanted to branch off in that is um, when you're teaching like a class back when this whole pandemic hit, even in the last semester, if you did online, um, what like other than Zoom, like how would you would you project material and was there material that you needed to create on the spot like I know for me in data 
there's a lot of graphs, there's a lot of um, diagrams to write that like maybe just open up, project your screen and just draw it in and paint. But did you use anything like that to help you out? That's a good question. You know, um, I had taught online in the past, but they were asynchronous classes, meaning that all the material was online and we never actually met with the camera during a class time. So I had a lot of material that I used to project in the classroom. And I used very similar material um, when I taught online. Um, I actually was able to teach what they call high flex this semester. And I will confess to you that I was very nervous about it, but I thought it was the best thing for the students who were on campus and really wanted to come to a classroom. Um, but also something that, you know, frankly, could, could be new and fun and interesting for me as a teacher. We're always looking to grow. Um, if, you know, for anyone who hasn't heard of high flex, what that means is you have a group of students in the classroom physically, and then you have a group of students live on Zoom in this case, um, in, on a camera. Um, so there's a lot to manage in terms of technology. And back to your question about, you know, what materials and projections, um, I did learn to use some new tools. I did use things like PowerPoint or Prezi that both the online group and the in-person group could see. But all of a sudden you're faced with things that you really enjoyed doing for an activity or sharing in a room that no longer worked because it had to work for both. So in that case, I would use tools like Pull Everywhere um, or some of the, um, the uh, whiteboard tools in Zoom and I would draw or I would have other people draw. I would use the chat. So instead of people raising their hand um, or getting up and moving around the room to different groups, I would have them join the group on Zoom or I would have them draw on the, on the whiteboard or get out their phones and I would start a poll everywhere, which would provide um, a real time graph, for example, of all the answers and responses that would come in. And I, I hope that created a little bit more interest for everyone and it brought everybody together in one group or community, if you will, even though some were in person and some were online. So those were some of the ways that I changed up the materials to accommodate. Awesome, yeah, that is, I mean, that's, that's definitely gotta be a big obstacle and it seems like you did really find a way around it. Well, thank you. And I'll tell you, it was a challenge. I had some favorite activities that I liked that I had to adapt. Um, and I missed some of them. Um, I like teaching in person, to be honest. It, oops, I'm sorry. I think, that, did you want me to hold for a second? That, that's, that's totally yeah, that, fine. That's, yeah, you can, yeah, no, it's fine. Oh, oh my. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll go back to what I was saying. I had some favorite activities that I used to use in in-person teaching and I had to modify them. And I'll admit that some of those times I was really happy with that modification and sometimes I really missed being in person, but I did try to modify and continue to use the activities. I, I didn't wanna be a person who just stood in front of a camera or sat you know, um, on Zoom and just talked and showed slides. Um, one of the challenges with COVID though with technology, and this is another use of technology, was I didn't feel it was safe to use physical materials. Um, you know, I'm a big fan of group work. We'd get together after a video in class and break up into groups of three and four and sketch out some ideas and turn them in. I didn't feel it was safe for students to be handling each other's papers or for them to be passing them to me or me to pass them back after I had graded them. So we use technology really 
for all of our assignments and materials. Um, I found a couple of apps that I shared with the students. Um, one of them is Adobe Scan. So you can take a picture of any document with your phone and it turns it into a PDF. And then they could email it to me or load it onto the Blackboard site. So we had to use a lot of technology for some of those kind of fun in-class things that we would do that I'd normally just have people hand in and they, they could not. Um, even the students online could do that. They could sit there and sketch and work. Um, I put them in a breakout room and then they would take pictures of their work and they would upload them. So um, those were some of the ways, is, ways that we adapted and used technology in a different way. So now with technology being the norm essentially and meetings and classes, everything online, I have a two-part question for you. One, how does that affect experiential learning in the classroom? Things that are intangible and you can't recreate on an online setting. And then two, how is that going to affect business going forward? Are we going to see more of a hybrid work week for businesses, like a three, three, two, where two days are at home? What's that going to look like, do you think? That's a really good question as well. Um, and I think, you know, um, you know, one of the first things that people will lament when we turn to technology, especially recently with COVID, um, is that things become impersonal. Um, I've even heard people say that about social media. If, if you really think about it, social media is a technology manifestation of the social things that everybody used to do before social media. We would get together for a party, for example, um, and we would chat. You know, we'd have refreshments. We'd have people gathering in groups and talking about different things. We would share experiences or ideas. You had these meetings for business purposes. You had them for social purposes or you got together with your friends. Um, you played games sometimes. If you think about any social media platform, it's simply replicating what we do in person. So a lot of people over the years have said that we're turning more and more to technology and it's become impersonal. But I would venture to say, and perhaps I'm a glass half full person, that although we might not be meeting in person as much through use of social media, through use of, of online tools for meetings during COVID or other times, um, we are becoming more personal in different ways. Um, I think about people that I keep in touch with, with online tools that frankly, I would never keep in touch with high school friends that I would never even know where they live or what they do or if they're married and if they have kids. And I can tell you everything about them because they post periodically on Facebook. I can tell you what their kids look like and where they work and what their new hairstyle is like. <laughs> That's very personal. Social media, a technology tool made that happen. Um, similarly, um, with the things that we do right now um, with meetings, whether it's for work or school, and actually, this can be, frankly, a privacy issue for some people. We are letting people into our homes. You will see my cat walk across the screen. Um, you will every now and then hear my husband call from the other room. You'll see my study when I don't have a virtual background up. Um, and we are really getting into people's lives. Um, you know, even we're dressed more casually. Um, we just are looking at our appearance in a different way. So I think that, um, you know, those sorts of things, when you ask about experiential learning, if we can have an open mind, we're still experiencing a lot of that personal touch. Um, I will say, though, that there are some things that I miss. Um, some of the things, for example, like meeting physically in groups, um, moving around. Um, one of my favorite activities in the classroom I call four corners, where 
you can actually apply it to anything and you have four signs set up in the room, like agree, strongly agree, disagree, strongly disagree. And instead of just discussing something, you ask people to get up and move to the sign that best fits their thoughts. And then they talk about their thoughts and people can move around. It's a lot of fun. It gets people up and moving. I can't do that with COVID. Um, but I do try to do different things using some of the tools I've mentioned in the past, like the chat in Zoom or a poll everywhere. So that again, students aren't just sitting there, they're actually interacting. You can see their um, reactions up on the screen. People can comment on them. You see the movement of the agree versus the disagree um, and that sort of thing. I will tell you one aspect of experiential learning that I'm very big on um, are really our, our service learning projects. Um, in almost every class that I teach, I try very hard to have students work on a real life project with local community groups or businesses. Um, interestingly enough, I always chose local organizations and contacts and colleagues. When COVID happened, I started to panic. How on earth will I have guest speakers in the classroom? How will I have people meet with a small company to kick off a project that they're going to do for class? We can't meet with anyone. Suddenly I realized that my community became a global community and the experiential learning I was looking for actually expanded. Um, this semester coming up, I have students working with uh, entrepreneurs in Florida, um, a small business owner out in Seattle, Washington, a small toy maker in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I never would have branched out to do that had it not been for COVID. Oddly enough, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you that, that I never thought of working with someone from afar. Um, so I think those things have really actually been enhanced by technology. For your second question, I think a lot of it is here to stay. And again, I try to look at it in a positive way. I'm a person who's very self-motivated. I've been working from home since March. I love it. I get a lot done. I get probably more done. Um, I do miss my colleagues seeing them chatting at the water cooler, but I do get to see them and talk to them just as we are doing right now. Um, I think that many of the um, companies um, and colleagues that I've talked to at larger companies are actually looking at their real estate strategy. They're moving into smaller spaces because they're allowing more people to work from home. They're actually branching out into employees they never would have considered because now they can consider someone across the country because they understand that people can work this way. And I also think, oddly enough, there's a big trust factor that has happened. Um, I myself have worked for people who were very against working remotely because they felt that people wouldn't work. Well, when everyone was forced into it and everyone had no choice but to trust and give people the benefit of the doubt, I think 99% of people realized that their employees and their colleagues were very capable and very trustworthy and very productive. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot of synergies there and the, and the virtual meetings are gonna continue. Um, the ROI is there in terms of you know, space and travel and food and expenses and so on. But I think that it's really working for people as we all become more comfortable with these tools. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I feel like you have a lot of good points there. And one thing that I thought of is uh, we've been talking a lot about the classroom and how, uh, like, and also into like a college atmosphere, a lot revolving around like work with students. But I wanted to see what your thoughts are if I were to take that into a corporate setting, into the C suite. Would it, 
would you imagine seeing that even if people are going into the office, people are going into their different offices, all four corner offices are filled. Do you think that these, um, these professionals are going to use Zoom to meet while they're doing other things on their second screen as opposed to sitting down in a boardroom? Do you see it that it might turn into an efficiency thing that there isn't, there's less time walking over to the boardroom, waiting for that last person to come in, waiting for the intern to bring whatever they need to bring, waiting for your materials to print out when you can just share your screen with them. Do you, do you see that effect staying? Because remote working remote, I, I see that's an amazing point, but also even within the building. That is a really interesting question. And you know, I have to say that I do think that some in-person interactions are going to return. I do think that a lot of people are missing it. Even where I work in my day job, if you will, on a large university campus, um, the campus is so large, larger than Stonehill, that um, I typically, even when we were there physically, would email people and call people. I um, did not meet people after working there a year who worked on that campus because they were on the other side of campus. So some of the points you've made with regards to virtual meeting might still work. But from talking to my friends and just reading some articles and checking in with colleagues, I do think that when we can return to in-person, there will be a quite a bit more of that. But I do think there will be two very different factors. Um, one to me is the culture of both the organization or an industry. Um, for example, and having worked in the private sector for over 20 years, uh, one example might be the finance industry. It tends to be um, a little bit more formal um, perhaps a little bit more set in its ways. And it also also has a lot of concerns with regards to privacy um, and you know keeping tabs on certain things for regulatory purposes and so on. They might actually, and this is just my opinion, go back to a lot more in-person learning and, and kind of the more formalized structure where they're very much more accustomed to meeting physically. Whereas you might have um, some, you know, perhaps, um, industries that are more creative um, culturally, whether it's consumer goods or a design firm or advertising or marketing um, that might say, this is really working for us and we're going to continue. I will say though, the one thing I feel is, is going to change, and this comes from both a teaching as well as a working perspective, is that um, I myself will view things in new ways. Uh, let's take a traditional classroom before COVID if we can remember back that far. If a student emailed me and said, oh, I'm not feeling well, I'm going to miss class tonight. I would say, oh, I'm so sorry. I hope you feel better. Um, you know, Grab the notes from a friend. Let me know if you have any questions. Um, now I'd say, hey, do you want me to flip a camera on so you can join by Zoom? I think that's going to be my go-to. And it wasn't that I was a, a thoughtless person or a mean teacher in the past to not allow them to do that. It honestly would never have crossed my mind. If we have a class and you're not there, you're not there. Um, I can tell you um, on, a, on a related kind of um, you know, element, if you will, that I think applies to both work and school. I noticed my online and high flex classes this semester I hardly had any absences. There was no reason to be absent. If someone wasn't feeling well, um, they could just flip on their computer and just sit there in their fuzzy slippers. And I encouraged them to do so. I said, hey, if you don't have your usual energy, that's okay. It's much better to be there, listening in, 
you know, contributing if you want, or just being a fly on the wall if you're not feeling your best. So I think that that mentality for both meetings in the workplace, as well as teaching, no longer will we say, well, you know what, Evan's not available at two. Um, he's going to be on the road, so we can't meet. Evan can say, I'll call you from my car, or I'm going to be home, coming home from the doctor. I'll flip on my camera and join you by Zoom. Um, I think that that's a real positive in terms of what we've been doing and in, 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 in the, the way we've been transitioning to this use of technology. You know, it's actually like, for me, it's, it's crazy when that direction with it, because at first I was just thinking, you know, sitting around the office, I don't want to leave my nice cushy office. Let me flip on Zoom. But now to add that aspect of like, maybe the board meeting is still going to happen, but I'm running, me being an IT person, I'm running this report in the background that's going to take time to run. And I need to make sure it's going to run successfully that I'll just sign in and you can throw me up on the big smart board or whatever you have there. And I'm still attending that meeting without having to physically be there attending that meeting while others are there. And I could be both the fly on the wall in that. I even remember when I was doing remote classes, being a senior in college, which feels so long ago, <laughs> but I, um, I actually was, I, I was an essential employee and I went to class from work once just because they offered me the hours. And I thought, well, why not? I'm behind all of that. I'll just plug in an AirPod and I'll listen. I'll listen in. It was more of a, you know, listen, lecture style class, as opposed to seeing PowerPoints and notes. And I really don't feel like I missed any material doing that as well as I was able to go. Like at the time I was making sandwiches. I was a sub, I worked at a sub shop. Mm -hmm. and it was easy enough to just be taking orders because I'd have my mic muted. I'd still be listening as I made their order. I'd be hearing about the class subject and go on. Um, now, I, I did the same exact thing too. I was a delivery driver. So I just flipped on the same class. I'm not sure if it was the same class we took together, Ethan, but I had it on playing in my car while I was making deliveries too. So it was cool to, to listen and then still work at the same time and not miss anything. Do you know, it's really funny you say that because I had a class last semester where I had a lot of the students who were working. And I remember two students in particular reached out at the beginning of the semester, almost in an apologetic way to say, there are, I, I can see my schedule. There are gonna be a couple of times where I need to be at work. One of them worked at an ice cream place um, in the back and um, apologized and asked if it was okay to join. And I said, absolutely. And one of them actually, uh, one point in time could only join on the phone, um, but was able to listen in and even was able to jump in and comment. And, and I really didn't mind. I will say that I have heard and read some articles um, and heard from some colleagues that one of the concerns is the multitasking. I mean, we all do it. I've done it as well. Um, you know, even with your camera on, it's quite easy to check emails or to, you know, look at something online or what have you. And I'll hear a lot of complaints about that. And I think it's a concern of instructors for students as well. But then I stopped to think about it and I said, well, let's be real about this. How many times have I sat in a meeting and doodled or sent an email on my phone, um, even though I was physically in the room? And, um, and I can tell you there are probably times in a classroom where students have their phones. I don't have a no phone rule because we we use our phones and I think we're all adults, but you know, where they might've had something that needed their attention and they looked it up online or responded to a text. It happens, we're human. So um, I don't know that technology is, um, and Zoom in particular is, 
uh, such a big issue with multitasking. Um, I don't think we're going to avoid it. And I think it happened before as well. I just wanted to, um, to get into your background a little bit because you used to pitch different products to major retailers, including Target, Walmart, Amazon, stores like that. So I just want to know what that experience was like in person going to, the, to these headquarters of Target and Walmart like before COVID. And then what do you think that is going to look like right now? And do you think it kind of hurts the person making the pitch because there's so many distractions through a screen? You know, uh, it's really interesting, you know, to go back to when I did it in person, I truly enjoyed um, visiting the retailers. First of all, um, those big retailers, you learn so much from them. Each and every one of them is a powerhouse. Um, and I found that the staff, the, the buyers, the people that I was working with, they were smart, they were, um, you know, action oriented, energetic, and I really enjoyed working with them and learning from them. I won't lie, though, it was quite stressful, oftentimes, as you can imagine, you had a very short time frame since they were so busy to share what you needed to share, you had to be very succinct, you were typically sharing a product and trying to get it in their set. And you had a very limited time to convince them, you know, um, in, to take yours instead of perhaps the 20 other people like you who also flew out and were staying in a hotel and sharing their products that week. In a way, though, if you work in product development, you know, those products are your babies. You have often um, conceived of them from a drawing or a, a, an idea in a focus group and so on. And you've taken them through the drawings and the models and the research and the manufacturing to where they were then. So to present them is just really um, an honor. And it's actually the culmination of a lot of work, which is very, very exciting. Um, but I think, you know, you really need to be very well prepared but also prepare to think on a dime. Different things can happen. They can ask a question that you didn't prepare and that you don't know the answer to. And you either have to figure out what that answer is on the fly or say, I don't know, but I'll get back to you. So um, there's a, quite a bit of stress, quite a bit of travel, um, but the reward is great when you come away and feel you did a really good job and it went as you had planned. And ultimately to walk down the, the aisle in a Target and see this product on a shelf a few months later is really wonderful. So I did not work in that field when COVID happened, but um, chatting with my colleagues who still do, those meetings carried on and they did carry on just as we are right now, just as we started teaching and meeting and all the things that we do with online tools. Um, I think it probably went better than you might expect. Um, Perhaps one of the reasons I feel that way is, is a lot of the companies I worked with um, had overseas manufacturers. My, the last large company I worked for was a Chinese company. And obviously you couldn't hop on a plane to China whenever you wanted. It wasn't practical from a cost or a timing standpoint. So we often had team meetings and we reviewed products um, just as we're reviewing now. Um, if we needed to look at the wheel on a stroller, they would put it up on a table and bring the camera closer so that we could see the etching in the wheel. Um, you know, they would show us a, a product and stand it back on the table and demonstrate it. And we would get, you know, a, a mechanism that we were working on and we would show it online as well. 
So I do know that it's possible. I believe it's one of those things very similar to what we've been discussing all along is that you had to adapt and then you just did. Um, I can tell you though that, you know, the expense and the time taken to travel, um, I would often spend a full two days or three days traveling to and from a place like Target in Minneapolis or Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas uh, for a half hour meeting. Um, that's a lot if you really start looking at the time that it takes um, to get there and to set up and to practice and then to clean up and to get home. So if you can do that um, online, that's amazing. And I would imagine that that's something that's probably going to stick around a little more, just like some of the other online tools and practices that we've discussed. So I would love to take what you were saying there, because a lot of what you were saying there and what Kyle even mentioned that it, exactly in the direction was business to business advertising. So I would love to hear your thoughts on business to consumer, especially, for example, within the clothing industry, how that has most likely changed because I, I could go to Marshall's, I could try on a pair of pants and I could know I love the way this fits. I'm going to leave with these pants where now I can't do that. So why don't I just go to Amazon and order that similar looking pair of pants from there and maybe buy three pairs in three different sizes, try them all on and send back the ones I don't want. You know, it's really funny, Ethan, um, when I look at the, in my opinion, the companies that have really done well um, during this time of COVID, it's those that took care of some of the things that you're talking about way before COVID happened. So when we look at e-commerce, and um, I, I'm afraid I'm dating myself here because I remember back before the internet, believe it or not, there was a time um, and people first started to order online. I can remember first ordering something online and honestly thinking, this isn't gonna work, but I'm gonna try it. I'm sure it's not gonna look like what I think it is. It's not gonna be high quality. It's not going to get here. Um, I've lost my money. Um, that was in the back of my mind. Retailers who needed to overcome that in the early days and, um, and then continue to overcome it with new product categories like luxury goods. Um, who would have thought that we'd buy diamond rings and cars sight unseen on the internet, but we do. Um, they had to implement some policies. The, the first one really um, in my mind was a generous return policy, no questions asked. Um, and to make that very, very clear to give people that peace of mind. So retailers, online retailers that do that um, to this day are the ones who are going to continue to secure customers even when those product lines changed or that price goes up. Technology has really done a lot in terms of letting consumers feel comfortable that they are getting what they're seeing online. So early on, there were models, um, 3D models. Um, I remember early on, there were, the first one I think, um, her name was Miss Boo. It was a, um, a, a retailer that I don't believe is, is in existence anymore, but you could turn this model around 360 um, with a piece of clothing on, with a dress or a skirt or a shirt and, um, and really see what it looked like. Um, so now what you know, um, retailers are doing are showing lots and lots of photographs, lots and lots of videos, um, trying to ensure that they account for differences in screens um, where the color might not seem the same. Um, when you have a video or you have a great variety of photography, 
you can see the scale next to someone, you can see how it appears next to the sky or next to a tree, you can see it in use. Um, all of those things are very important. And I think another really huge element of online shopping and how businesses market to consumers is the whole series of reviews. Um, reviews have become so powerful and they've really ebbed um, and flowed and come full circle over the years. Um, online reviews were just something that obviously were, were really great. You got to read about um, how someone just like you might feel about a product and what they liked and didn't like. Then, in my opinion, it got a little bit of artificial. Before it was regulated, you actually did have competitors posting negative reviews of their competitors' products or paying people to simply write reviews that were very positive about theirs for, from people who had, never, who had never really used the product. Um, I think that everything came full circle and a lot more authenticity was built into the process. This is going to sound really odd, but I feel that when some of the major retailers took control of that process, it actually became more authentic. That's probably going to sound like an oxymoron, but for example, Amazon has a whole process by which you can take an early production run of a product and send it to them and they will seed it to a review base that they use. Um, but they have vetted this review ba base to be very honest um, and be very truthful. It's not that you're sending it to someone and they're simply going to write lots of positive things. Um, however, that allows you to authentically get your reviews up because a lot of people won't purchase without any reviews or at least a certain number of positive reviews. So that's what I mean by some of the retailers taking control of that process and making it authentic, but actually managing and handling it. Whereas before it truly was just kind of, you know, ad hoc, whether people would, you know, take your product and review it. So I think some of those things are allowing people to utilize, or businesses, I should say, utilize technology to really market to consumers. I'd love to mention one other thing here, though, that I've read is going to be a really big trend um, in this area, and that is social media now becoming a primary driver of purchases. It never was. Even when companies advertised on social media, um, it seemed like it was more to get the word out. Um, word of mouth, um, get a lot of buzz, perhaps, you know, tap into that whole review type of concept. Um, but now, and COVID has really picked up on this because people started getting on social media even more than before because they were stuck at home and really smart people saw this as a way to actually sell. So social selling is the buzzword, you know, of uh, 2020 and it's going to continue into 2021. And I believe that companies are going to find new ways to market their products on social media and actually let you purchase from there. I'm glad you brought that up because I have been dying to talk about social media and shopping on it. With Instagram's latest update, which I updated probably a few days ago, maybe a week or two ago, um, it was completely different. And I'm like, what changed? So at the bottom of the app, I'm on it right now. There are five icons and the fourth icon used to be an activity feed where you could see all your recent activity, all your friends, recent activity. They took that out and replaced it entirely with a shopping tab. And now, and the third icon used to be how you posted. Now all that is in a tiny square on the first page in the top right corner. It took me forever to figure out where did they move how to post, which in essence is what Instagram is about. 
Wow, Kyle, that is fascinating because that almost to me says that they are completely changing their focus to the shopping. Absolutely, that's that's amazing and making it so much more prominent. I mean, it, a while back, Facebook did that somewhat with their marketplace. You know, marketplace was not a thing or an icon, and now it's one of the major icons as well. So that is fascinating. I need to check that out on Instagram. But I believe it really is indicative of this concept um, by which you know they're they're really looking. People are looking to social media as a shopping platform, and they never did before. Absolutely. And Ethan loves the marketplace. He can tell you all about it. I just opened it up right here, actually. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I bought a car on the marketplace, Ethan. Really? Did you? I sure did, and I love it. (laughs) I have bought, I I bought, actually, the the microphone I'm using right now was bought off the marketplace. (laughs) I will always check the marketplace before I check almost anywhere to buy something brand new. If I know I could, could probably get it used, I always hunt a bargain. But the one thing I wanted to bring up there is the advertisements within the marketplace. Now I was scrolling through trying to find an example. Unfortunately, I can't right now, but I have seen in the past while I'm just kind of perusing, doing my online shopping on the secondhand market, uh, just to find different advertisements that they look exactly like somebody posted it. And I've seen it a lot. I play the guitar. So I like to look for nice secondhand guitars that some people are getting rid of. And, um, I've clicked on one. I'm like, wow, that one looks really cool. And it takes me to Guitar Center's website, to Sweetwater's website, just to be like, hey, yeah, we have this guitar brand new right here for you. And it's like, but that's not what I'm looking for. But it looked just like it it looked just like Kyle went on there and said, I'm selling this guitar. (laughs) That's amazing. And, you know, I have heard a lot of feedback on that, Ethan. There are some people who are annoyed by it because they feel tricked if they feel that it's a post. Um, but you know, it, it obviously is a strategy within the the social media companies. Um, you know, to me, there's two ways to, to get people's attention. One, one we call the violator, um, which if you picture, oh, a cereal box with a giant gold star that's splattered on top of the photo and the words and all, and your, your eyes are drawn to it. It's typically in a contrasting color and it, it violates that you know, that scene that they have placed on the package. Um, But the other concept really is to design an advertisement to make it fit into the environment in which it is. And it looks like a post um, or it looks like a a picture, you know, that someone has put in. Um, I believe Facebook at one point in time in one of their past advertising um, design strategies had to start saying this is an advertisement. Um, I'll tell you another organization that struggled with that a bit is Google. Um, in, the, in the olden days when Google AdWords were the small four-line ads that were kind of off to the right-hand side um, to, uh, of all the search terms that you had searched for, it was very obvious that those were ads. But when they started putting them in line so that now you have one column, Um, you'll notice that at the top, and this was years ago, so it's probably commonplace, but I remember when it first happened, um, it now has to say ad or advertisement so that you don't think it came up in the search terms. And again, they were using the strategy, like the one that you have identified, Ethan, that they tried to make it fit into that format. Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned that because what what I've seen on the Facebook marketplace, or at least from my memory, what I can remember is because I, I can't find a 
like example of ex- of exactly what I'm talking about. There's still plenty of ads, but they're obviously an ad. But they didn't necessarily have anything that said it was an advertisement, but what they did have that the other things don't is the link to the website under it. Like it would say from guitarcenter.com, but it's in like the finest of fine print that I'm, if I'm just looking at the pictures of guitars and I see, wow, that one looks really cool. That one, let me, let me click on that. What's the price? What's, who's the seller? Where is it? Where is it located? And I'm at just at the website. That's when I noticed that it's not the secondhand marketplace that I was hoping for. It is just, you can buy this new at Guitar Center or wherever. Well, you know, and I think, Ethan, that this is a cultural shift. We were actually discussing this in one of my classes, and it came up in the topic of ethics. And and I wouldn't go so far as to say that this is an ethical issue, but um, it's more to me a a consumer expectation issue. If, If you are expecting to see private people posting things in the marketplace or or friends and connections posting things within a feed of a social media a platform, um, you might be irritated to find that something that's in there is an advertisement. But what I've been reading and what we discussed in class was there's a shift um, to where as long as it's done tastefully and the platform is actually really understanding you as a consumer and meeting your needs and delivering and serving up things that you're interested in, you might actually get some things that you need and then why would you mind? Um, we discussed this also in the context of, you know, the, um, the AI programs that someone like Amazon uses, where when I log into my Amazon, it says, Kristen, here are some things you might like. And I'm sure that's very different from yours. Um, and at first, a lot of people expressed annoyance at that. But then as you start to pull people and say, well, have you ever clicked on one of those? Have you ever bought anything from that page? And people say, well, yes. Um, the bottom line is that as they get better and better with the technology, they learn about you and they're actually serving up things you're interested in. So, you know, Ethan, if you find the guitar of your dreams by clicking on one of the Guitar Center ads as opposed to a private post at the end of the day, it met your needs and you got what you needed. So I think, again, provided it's done tastefully, we culturally are going to shift and start to accept it. Understood. Yeah, I see that because I'm, I'm really trying to think about what if I see like that guitar I've wanted forever, not secondhand, but I almost find it secondhand. But oh, look, it's 10% off at Guitar Center. Maybe I'll go ahead and buy that. Absolutely. You know, I've even noticed something similar on LinkedIn, which is one of my favorite platforms and obviously more of a professional or B2B platform. I'll find an article that I think is really interesting. And after I click on it, when I go back, I realize it says sponsored up on the little right-hand side. And I realize, no, that wasn't one of my connections who cross-posted an article or a group that I'm following. Um, LinkedIn obviously has an algorithm too. And they put that in my feed because they thought I was interested. And I was. So um, I don't find myself getting annoyed when those articles are something that I'm truly interested in. I want to take everything we were just talking about and switch gears a little there. So we were talking a lot about products entering the market, like you were saying, especially going back to what Kyle was saying about selling to mar- like the business to business aspect, selling your product idea to targets and Walmarts. Um, one thing I notice in, especially in the pandemic, well, definitely in the pandemic is items being sold online that normally there would also be a big demand for them in the storefront. So the biggest example that comes to my mind being somebody who plays video games is the PlayStation 5 and how 
black market black market wow um black friday sales for that it wasn't like i remember i was looking into getting one for the longest time i tried everything and black friday walmart's black friday deal wasn't that i'm getting i'm saving money on it at all it was that we're gonna have stock of it that was the big thing and i wanted to hear what you thought about that because the big thing is having that stock but it's only online so i'm no longer battling people in line waiting the longest outside of walmart because that's COVID heaven but to be battling other people online as well as these genius computer programmers and maybe just amateur computer programmers that can do enough that write a code that can easily the second it becomes available figure that out type in um, create an account buy it different credit cards done now i have five ps5s walmart doesn't know any better what would they even care about that like what what are your ideas there Wow, that's so interesting. Well, you know, and this again might just be my opinion, but in the, I keep saying in the olden days, but a while back, um, to me, a retailer always had two very distinct strategies for their brick and mortar stores and their online. Um, and me working, for example, for a consumer goods company could even see that when I worked with a Walmart, we would even develop products that were only available online. Um, are only available in store or in certain stores. And it, these were used in a very intelligent manner. They were used to drive business. Um, if at a specific time or for a specific purpose, um, a Walmart wanted to drive more traffic to purchasers online, um, they would sweeten the deal in terms of pricing or a special product or a deal on shipping or that sort of thing. Vice versa, um, the, you know, the same things would happen in the stores. So, you know, I think that it wasn't just COVID, but I do think it's going to be a permanent kind of a factor that COVID has brought about. I'm seeing this merge a little bit more. I mean, we know that there's that term out there, the omni-channel marketing, where, you know, we want to make sure as a retailer that we're meeting everyone's needs, no matter where they're going and that we're providing consistent messaging, consistent service. Um, and that we're meeting their needs in a consistent way, whether they visit us on a website or they walk through a door. I believe now that retailers are going to care a little bit less about how people get their products. And your point was a really good one, Ethan. Um, I think that the big push, or at least it should be, is logistics. It's not very exciting. It might not be top of mind for marketers like me um, who just felt like, well, that's going to happen in the background. Someone else will worry about getting that product on, on time. Um, my job is to make it or to make it exciting or to get the word out about it. Those logistics are, are so important. As you said, it wasn't so much you know that it was offered online. It was that we actually have it in stock or we can get it to you by Christmas and so on and so forth. So I think the focus now will be on those sales um, and meeting the needs wherever it might be. And for online shoppers, that's especially going to be logistics. Um, look at how, frankly, the shipping um, whole process, if you will, whether it was the US Postal Service or UPS or FedEx, no one was on time over the holidays. No one could guarantee anything um, at any point in time. Um, you know, from the things that I tried to ship, whether it was related to a holiday or not. And I think it was a real eye opener 
Um, and I think that those who can rise to the top with regards to meeting consumer needs by getting things to a certain place by a certain time, having it in stock, because that's the back end of the logistics, actually getting it in there, not just the last mile coming to you. Um, I think they're going to really rise to the top. So what does the future hold for brick and mortar locations? Because right now with what I'm seeing with targets and Walmarts, like at the start of the pandemic, site to store, there was only two parking spots, maybe in the front of the store. Someone just grabbed your items and brought it out for you. Now it's like a whole aisle. And every time you go to a Target or a Walmart, every spot is filled. So are you, do you think in the future with brick and mortar locations that almost universally, this is going to be a, a lasting change that site to shore, site to shore is the way of the future? You know, I really do think that it's going to blend a lot more in both directions, Kyle, honestly. I mean, we're even, as you know, seeing big online retailers like Amazon putting brick and mortar stores in. You know, traditionally as a marketer, we would kind of approach your question um, from a product and consumer standpoint saying, well, which products will folks feel uncomfortable purchasing sight unseen? And that's where we would focus our brick and mortar um, merchandising strategy on. Um, however, now with some of the things we've discussed this on this call, really, um, you know, generous return policies, great improvements in technology so that you can see and hear and read about and visualize and see what others have to say about things. Even those products we thought were super important to touch and feel are, are no longer. So I really think, in my opinion, it's going to be a balance. Um, I would, and I, this is just me, I would predict that store count will go down and that uh, resources towards online will go up um, and vice versa, if you will, for an online retailer. I mean, even Zappos a while back, you know, the online shoe retailer, they experimented with pop-up shops and physical stores. I think that all types of retailers are going to kind of even out their offerings, if you will, um, between brick and mortar on online. And again, the focus will be on sales and in meeting consumer needs. I mean, even before COVID, many major retailers had a strategy by which you could see something in the store and you were welcome to pick up that box and put it in your cart. Or you were also prompted to whip out your cell phone and go on the website and order it and have it shipped to your home, um, especially with a big item, or perhaps they didn't have the exact color that you wanted, but they did online. And again, um, smart retailers can actually drive business to where they want it. Um, let's say, and I'm just going to make this up. Let's say that you are purchasing a chair um, at a Target, you know, which has a lot of, um, of furniture. And you see a couple of selections, different colors there in the store, and you look online, and wow, if you buy this forest green color, it's 20% off. Well, you decide forest green will go just fine. So you buy it online, have it shipped to your house and you walk out of the store empty handed. Well, Target might've done that because they had a surplus of forest green. So they're selling lots of great chairs and they've driven you to take the inventory that they want you to take by pushing you to purchase it online and not even offering that in a store. So. 
I think we're going to see a lot more of that. And that's going to benefit the retailer in terms of managing things like inventory, um, managing distribution. Um, let's say back to our, our discussion of logistics, they couldn't get a certain product in. Well, they can drive you to get another product um, that meets your needs. Um, so our needs are, are being met as well. And we're often being given specials or deals or discounts that we love. Um, while at the same time, we're really fitting into their business strategy and they're kind of driving us where they need us. Professor, did you have anything else you wanted to hit on? You know, there, there's one trend that I'm wondering about, um, and I don't really have a basis in fact um, for it, but I've just been thinking about it and mulling it over after reading is I'm wondering for some of the conversations we've had about social media and the shift between online and brick and mortar and shopping, um, if we won't see some additional social media platforms emerge, brand new ones that are really focused on shopping, um, which, you know, um, I, I guess there's a couple out there now, but, you know, in, in my mind, most of them actually started with another purpose. Um, and I think we'll probably see some that are really focused on social shopping and that will embody everything that we love about our traditional social media platforms, um, where we connect with people um, and we share interests and we have groups and a lot of the other technical features, but that we're allowed to shop. Um, but the other trend that I've been reading about with regards to that, and it, 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 it almost counters that last trend if I'm talking about new platforms is I'm wondering if companies aren't going to start streamlining and cutting back on some of their platforms because there's so many of them. And you know, in the past when perhaps we all weren't online quite so much before COVID, um, everyone just had perhaps a steady pace of posting and putting up content and utilizing their social media platforms, but they've become a big focus now. Um, I think it's too much. And I think perhaps some companies are spreading too thin and it's just not necessary to be on all of the platforms. Um, I'm hoping that folks start to really target in and zone in on their specific target customer, um, the people that love their products and what social media platforms they're using and really start to focus on that and perhaps let the other ones go. Because if you're on too many of them and you spread yourself too thin, you're not really doing a, a very good job with any of them. Do you think we'll ever see a social media that's actually a true social media platform again, where it's just sharing, no, no corporate, no selling to, to the users? Do you think we'll ever see that again? You know, I know a lot of people wish for that, Kyle. You know, in one of my e-commerce classes, we study the history of the internet. And it's super interesting to me and I think to other people as well. And, you know, we, um, we uh, talk about Tim Berners-Lee who basically invented, if you will, the World Wide Web. Um, in a recent interview, he had one word to describe his feelings towards how things had gone with his wonderful invention. And that word was devastated. And it's very sad that he is devastated. And he's actually working with a new um, uh, group of colleagues to come up with a new World Wide Web. Um, because of what he feels devastated about, which is the lack of privacy and the commercialism and how it was changed. You know, back to my thought about new social media platforms, one of the things that I find fascinating, and I have to say, I learn as much from teaching 
um, as I hope my students do, because as I prepare and read new things and get up to speed, um, I'm learning a lot too. Um, you know, I like to call a lot of our technology tools a life hack. Um, we all know what a life hack is. It's when we take something that's not meant for a purpose and we, um, we use it for something else. Um, I'll use the example in the classroom, which I would have to do online now. I get a rubber band and I go over to the doorknob of the classroom and I wrap it around the doorknob and around the little groove that comes out to lock the door. And then I close the door and it doesn't lock. And I say, see, this is a great life hack. If you want to prevent getting locked out, maybe you're coming in and out of a door, you wrap this rubber band around. And it's just a really nice hands-on way to show what a life hack is. Well, in my opinion, the internet, all our technology tools are life hacks. And, and Kyle, when you say, will we ever go back to a social media platform that's just social, that's really how they started. And everything that we as society or as marketers or as teachers or anybody do with these things. It was never meant to do that. Um, the internet was never meant for email. It was never meant to show videos and to talk with each other like we're doing right now. It was never meant for shopping. Um, I'm really glad that we can do all those things and I'm sure everybody else is too, but it was definitely an evolution and it wasn't built for it. And frankly, just like that rubber band probably won't last forever on the doorknob, it wasn't made for that. It's going to break. It's going to stretch thin. Um, we will hopefully come up with new technology that, you know, to your point, is brand new and meant for what it's going to, to do actually be doing. Of course, then we're going to advance and evolve, and it also is going to become its own life hack, if you will. Um, but right now, a lot of what we're doing is on platforms and on technology that was never meant to be. Um, and that's really, it, it's really great and exciting and amazing to see what we've done with it. But um, I do think that more advancements will come to um, allow us to do brand new things and, and that will be built for us specifically to do those things and to do them well. Great. That was fun. I hope that that's what you had in mind. Yep. That was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking to us about everything technology related. I learned a lot today. Thank you. I had a lot of fun too. It's always great to just kind of talk about ideas. That's actually one thing that I love about teaching and um, hearing different people's ideas and they kind of build into your own. It, it is a very, very exciting time. Um, I can tell you that. And um, who knows what the future holds? Another funny thing that I, I do in class, and this is an actual true story. I've been teaching digital marketing at Stonehill. Oh, I hesitate to say probably that class for over 10 years. And I'll never forget um, one time, many, several, several years ago, we were talking about jobs in social media. And I said to the class, believe it or not, um, experts, um, you know, that in, in articles that I'm reading, they say that one of the biggest up and coming jobs in this area is going to be what they call a social media manager. You know, someone who works at a company and posts on social media. And the whole class just kind of sniggered. <laughs> and laughed and rolled their eyes and said, what a job people like posting on, you know, Facebook or whatever the social media platform of the day was. That's not a job. You can't make a job out of that. But look today, I mean, that if you don't have a social media manager in an organization, you aren't anybody, right? Um, I can't tell you or anybody what that job is going to be in five years. We don't even know about it. Um, we don't even know what it's called or what it's going to be. 
So what I strive to do in my own kind of thinking and professional development and definitely in my teaching is, you know, not just to teach concepts and how things are now, but to hopefully pave the way for people to embrace change and to think about, you know, how things are done and what people need, because that's going to change. And when you have that open mind and you're willing to look at technology, how to use it in a new way and try something new, invent something new, use it in a different way. Those are going to be the jobs of the future. Um, the people who can do that, they're the ones that are going to really make it in the future and enjoy it. Um, and be really thrilled with their progress. Absolutely. I got to say, one thing I love about doing this is just like how the ideas just flow. Like we started with the pandemic and we are so in the future from the pandemic talking <laughs> about what could be, what came out of it. And I, I love that. Me but, too. Me too. So much fun. <laughs> definitely. Well, again, I'd love to thank you for your time. It's been really great to sit down and chat with you about everything. It's been well, thank you for asking me. I'm really honored. And I hope you'll tell me when it's live um, so I can listen in and share it with all my colleagues using social media. Oh, absolutely. Yep. It'll be on Facebook. It'll be on LinkedIn probably. So we'll get it everywhere. That's awesome. Great. Thank you. Another special thank you to Professor McGillicuddy for sitting down and talking to us. I very much enjoyed talking to her about everything from COVID to post-COVID life, what we might be looking forward to seeing. Yeah, it was great having Professor McGillicuddy on the show today. And really with the second episode, now that we're two episodes in, what I really like about this podcast is that a bunch of the things we're talking about, we already know about, but it's just this conversation and the professors themselves talking about it, where we realize and we start picking up on things around us that we we never really noticed before. Like when Professor McGillicuddy was talking about all the all the different social media tactics and strategies and everything like we subconsciously we've seen that we know all that but it's just talking about it and bringing those ideas to light is when we really realize it and we're like ah right so that's what they're doing there and that's I, wicked interesting for me i couldn't agree more kyle you want to let the listeners know where they can hear us next and follow us on social medias absolutely you can listen to us on youtube Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts and hit that subscribe button to helps us out. It helps everyone out and you'll get the next episode automatically downloaded to your podcast when we post. Also go check us out on Facebook and Instagram. We have some exclusive never before seen video content that you won't see anywhere else. So you definitely want to follow us on those platforms. Thank you again to all of you guys for tuning in. Bye.